Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the lame duck White House is engaged in a virtually unprecedented spree of federal executions, eight so far this year with more scheduled. As with many aspects of his presidency, it's both Trump being especially gruesome and at the same time his simply making use of a gruesome machinery he didn't create. And federal executions are, of course, just a part of the picture. We'll talk about the death penalty with Liliana Segura, investigative journalist at The Intercept. Also on the show, between the time he made a video in which he danced with a Pizzagate propagator to celebrate the repeal of net neutrality, and the time he misled Congress about how the agency's public comment system was cyber-attacked just at the moment that John Oliver urged viewers to leave comments supporting net neutrality, there are things about exiting FCC chair Ajit Pai, the human, to make one glad to see the back of him. We'll talk less personally about the Pi FCC and how they're holding water for Trump till the end with Gaurav Laroya, senior policy counsel at the group Free Press. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. It's so astonishing, at a time we feel ourselves nearly numb to astonishment, that it generated a Snopes fact check. Could it be that the Trump administration executed more people in five months than the federal government executed during the previous five decades? It is true. And indeed, things are at such a pass that it's almost eerie that Trump isn't bragging night and noon about the spree of state killings, three and four days over the summer, and now ramping up to a level unprecedented from a lame duck White House since the days of Grover Cleveland, who had been, law professor Austin Surratt reminded recently in Slate, an executioner himself as a New York sheriff. Not content to schedule state killings practically up to the day Biden takes office, Trump's Justice Department has also just changed the rules to allow executions by electrocution and firing squad. This at a time when many states have abolished the death penalty and more and more people say they oppose it. Our next guest has reported on the death penalty, sentencing, and U.S. prisons for much longer than Trump has been in office. Investigative journalist Liliana Segura now reports for The Intercept. She joins us now by phone from Nashville. Welcome to Counterspin, Liliana Segura. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, as with a lot of things, it feels like we're moving in two different directions. More people, if still not a majority, say the death penalty is morally unacceptable. The data has kind of sunk in that its application anyway is unfair and racist and not a deterrent to crime. But then when individual cases come up, it becomes a different category of story, if you will, and statistics matter less than what if it were your sister. You've been doing, as I say, this reporting since before Donald Trump and Bill Barr. I just wonder how you've approached the terrain of this issue and what you're making of the present moment. It's been a very surreal time to be covering these executions. I mean, as you highlighted, I've written about the death penalty 
a lot for many, many years. And actually, one of the kind of bizarre aspects of my work in recent years has been that since I moved to Nashville about five years ago, the state of Tennessee has actually carried out a large number of executions. And the last several of those were carried out using the electric chair. And so although I haven't witnessed those executions, a number of my sort of local friends and colleagues in, in the media have outside of our sort of local uh, bubble, and I think more broadly, I don't think Americans quite realize just how much we've tolerated a system that continues to use things like the electric chair, which when it was announced that the Trump administration was was looking to bring back the electric chair uh, and firing squads, really generated a fair amount of revulsion among a lot of people who seem sort of unaware or, or maybe haven't thought about these issues in a long time. So I think we, we run the risk a little bit of putting these federal executions in the context of this sort of horrifying, violent Trump era, which has kind of broken so many norms that we're, we're accustomed to. And yet, when you look at different states, when you look at what's been happening in Tennessee, we've been pretty violent in the past uh, several years and, and tolerating quite a bit as Americans when it comes to these sort of the more mundane um, executions from day to day and, and year to year. So part of my project, when William Barr announced that they were looking to restart federal executions after more than 15 years, my task was to sort of remind myself of the history that underpins this, this federal system. Uh, we hadn't seen a federal execution since 2003. So the first piece that I wrote was actually kind of going back and re-examining uh, how we got here. And so much of that story uh, really is about the Democrats, frankly, and is about the era of the 1994 crime bill and the vast expansion of federal prosecutions, federal death sentences as a result of, of that crime bill. So it's been an interesting time to see through the election now entering a Biden administration, Joe Biden famously, you know, having authored much of the crime bill, to see what's going to happen next. Biden now claims to oppose the death penalty. And I'm sort of looking forward to seeing how that plays out in terms of meaningful action. Well, absolutely. Um, you don't have to dig too far to find Biden saying, you know, we do everything but hang people for jaywalking in this bill. He was very much for it before he was against it. It seems like the death penalty is an issue in this country where the country moves, as I would say, forward and then back. You know, we start to act like every other so-called developed country, and then someone like Lester Maddox pops up and says, they're getting away with murder, you know, and it swings, it swings back again. And as part of that, media and politicians characterize points of view without actual human beings attached. You know, victims deserve better criminals can't be helped. You know, it can get very sloppy and very straw man, which is why I think reporting, as you do, simple witnessing is important. But there are particular hurdles to that kind of reporting, aren't there? Absolutely. When Trump was elected, a lot of us kind of knew. We were like, okay, uh, this is a guy who is very pro-death penalty. He's going to she was a very pro-death penalty attorney general. We knew that federal executions were likely to return under Trump. What I never could have anticipated, certainly what none of us could have, would have been that these executions would be carried out with such a vengeance, but also in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic. And, and a huge part of 
the challenge of reporting on this moment has been navigating the danger, frankly, and risk of, of traveling during a pandemic, of doing this reporting during a pandemic. I happen to be based in Nashville, which gives me an advantage. I just have to drive the four hours up to Terre Haute to be on the ground for these executions. But a huge number of my media colleagues who have not been similarly positioned haven't come and have had to sort of choose to protect themselves uh, and not not try to make that trip to Terre Haute during these these last few months. I'll also add that, you know, while the DOJ and BOP have have taken steps to um, provide protective equipment, masks, sanitizer, all of that to the press who do come, especially to, to witnessing reporters. They've also laid down some pretty arbitrary rules about what people are allowed to do and not do uh, in order to protect themselves. So one of the things I find most disturbing and that I've grappled with every time I apply to be a witness for these executions is the fact that they don't want reporters bringing their own masks. For me, that sort of makes a difference, especially now, uh, between applying to be a witness and accepting that role if I'm chosen and not. And I think journalists who have had to witness repeatedly, I mean, there's one local reporter in Terre Haute who has witnessed all eight executions and will almost certainly witness the rest. They take that job on as part of their professional obligation, but assuming quite a bit of risk and danger that really shouldn't be necessary to do their jobs. Well, of course, every difficulty, every hurdle for reporters means a loss for the public in terms of information. You know, we hear that prisons used to be in the center of town, that people were hanged in the square, and there's all kinds of things you can say about that. But the implication is that transparency has been important. And now we really hide this part of what's done in our names. And that's partly why the witnessing is so important, but it's also why it seems so critical to be able to ground the conversation in data, in information. And on that note, I wanted you to tell us a bit about the project that you've worked on with Jordan Smith and others at The Intercept. What is the scope of that, and and how do you hope that that project would be used? I should preface this just by saying that, you know, Jordan and I, neither of us are data people. And so that project was uh, quite an undertaking on a number of different levels. But essentially, yeah, about a year ago, well, actually, this project really started back in, I guess, 2016. Essentially, we set out to try to take stock of the death penalty writ large as it exists in its current state. The impetus for the project that at the time was the anniversary of, of the landmark decision in Gregg versus Georgia, which is when the U.S. Supreme Court in 1976 determined that after a four-year kind of moratorium that came about because of flawed death penalty laws throughout the country, that essentially enough reforms had in ensured that the death penalty could now be carried out in an equitable and fair way. Um, There are enough protections to ensure that the system worked. And so since 1976 onwards, that's what we kind of call the so-called modern death penalty era. Yet we know, Jordan knows, through years of reporting, through seeing exonerations of innocent people who were sent to death row, the data pointing to systemic racism throughout the system as a whole, we knew that that if we were to start to look at not only who is still on death row in this country or who has been executed for that matter in recent years, but like the whole picture of who has been sentenced since 1976 and what has happened with those sentences, where those people have ended up, that that would provide a much fuller picture of the failures and shortcomings of this system. And so (laughs) in a moment of sort of what feels like temporary madness, we decided we were going to try to collect the data from all remaining death penalty states to basically just ask for information about 
all the people sentenced to death from 1976 to the present and, and their status. Uh, we knew that the vast majority of those people would not have been executed because what we see is that people on death row spend decades, often die of natural causes. Oftentimes they are resentenced. People many times take their own life on death row. And so we wanted to kind of get a bigger sort of overview of what the system looked like. So it took literally years to, to collect and analyze this data. One of the big takeaways that I suppose shouldn't be surprising, but which is nonetheless disturbing uh, when you consider the power of the state in taking a human life is, is the fact that the record keeping was just pretty bad, really, really shoddy, really incomplete, just a lot of confusing sort of basic questions that were not answered uh, in, the, in our first attempt to collect this data. I will say that there is absolutely no question that the data shows overrepresentation of people of color, especially black people on federal death row. And we're starting to see how that's playing out now. Of the five people who are set to be executed before uh, Joe Biden's inauguration, four of them are black men. And the other is um, the only woman on federal death row, Lisa Montgomery. So it's pretty striking, and there's still a lot to learn from that data set. Well, I appreciate the layperson approach, if you will, because it should be legible, you know, to non-statisticians. You know, it should be information that can be sort of understood. And then the other thing that leaps out at me is you have to combine the fact that the record keeping is so bad with the repeated assurances that the death penalty is being applied, as it were, surgically, that it's the worst of the worst, as the horrible overused phrase is. You know, the fact that the data is opaque, that the data is erratic and incomplete, is a statement in itself. Yeah, that was one of our big takeaways as well. It's really an indictment of sort of this or lack of seriousness uh, with which we treat these fundamental powers of government. There's a sort of lack of interest or curiosity or, or, or just a, an unwillingness to engage with that that reality among many Americans. And I, I learned that again and again in my reporting, just the fact that these executions, um, as disturbing as they are, have flown largely under the radar. A lot of people are sort of unaware that they're even happening. And, and I want to also say that in my recent interviews, those people who are unaware include some of the original prosecutors in the cases that are now coming up for execution. It's become a bit disturbing to me how little some of those prosecutors who are largely retired, how, how little they've followed these cases to their conclusion and, and the fact that it was sort of just part of their career and they've moved on while the victims that they promised closure to have been hanging on and, and oftentimes waiting for decades to see this all play out. It's really bothered me in recent days. Well, finally, the death penalty has a finality and irreversibility that for many people set it apart. But we should be wary, shouldn't we, of imagining that an equally certain but slower death in solitary confinement without possibility of parole is somehow a feel-good alternative. We can't just have a piece of this conversation about the continuum of cruelty that's reflected in our criminal system. And I know your concerns are expansive in that way, but it's important to, to kind of contextualize the death penalty. It's not like it's the one bad thing the system does. No, that's exactly right. And thank you for bringing that up. That's something that, fortunately, I think we've started to see a little bit of, uh, of change in the kind of broader landscape around the way people see what I call permanent sentencing. You know, I was struck during the during the primaries when everything was so heated that Elizabeth Warren 
uh, I believe, it got into a little bit of trouble at one point where she kind of said, and I don't remember the precise context, but essentially expressed support for the idea that life without parole is an appropriate sentence, um, I, I believe is an alternative to the death penalty. And at least on Twitter and social media, you know, a lot of people sort of jumped all over this comment to sort of say that this was, you know, that's almost as bad. It's a form of torture that we shouldn't support life without parole. And I got to say, as somebody who's been covering life without parole and the death penalty for years and years, that is different. It was not a people's sort of knee-jerk response to the notion that LWAP, as we call it, is an appropriate alternative. Uh, the the anti-death penalty movement for, for many years has pushed life without parole, in my mind, erroneously, as the kind of default acceptable alternative to state-sanctioned murder. And those issues have um, generated a fair amount of debate and tension. But but I, I think that the, the broader culture, <laughs> at least in the context of the primaries earlier, has kind of come around on, on, on questioning that as well. And I think solitary confinement and that form of torture is a big part of that as you lay out. Can I say one more thing about transparency? Say it. One other thing that's really been on my mind when it comes to to the lack of transparency and the kind of managing of, of the narrative on the part of the federal government is I've really been struck going back and forth to Terre Haute by the, the ways in which the Department of Justice controls the narrative to such a degree that it's got a very rigid system for enabling reporters access to certain people involved in these executions. And, and, and you highlighted, rightfully, the way in which people, when confronted with the horror of these crimes, say, what if it was your loved one? And so reporters have, on occasion, had access to the victim's family members after the execution. What happens is uh, the witnessing press comes back, people are allowed into this media room, and those family members who have witnessed come and are given a forum to address reporters. Sometimes reporters ask questions, and it's very moving, it's very sad, and the family oftentimes thanks the Trump administration, um, says that justice has been served, um, and it's, it's, it's part of this kind of um, process. And yet, there is no equivalent. There's no forum for the loved ones of the people who are put to death. In fact, they are explicitly not allowed in the in the media center. Uh, and, and to the extent that we've heard from loved ones of people put to death in Terre Haute, it's only been because activists have staked out literally sued, actually, to gain access to a field across from the penitentiary next to a Dollar General, where where they have come to hold vigils and protests, but also these kind of mini press conferences featuring spiritual advisors, and, and in the case of Christopher Vialva, the mother of Christopher Vialva, who witnessed his execution. And I've thought a lot about that, because it was the first time Christopher Vialva's mother was able to address reporters, but also express her sorrow and condolences for the family of the victims in that case. And it was a very moving moment, and yet not one that was officially sanctioned, not one that would ever be enabled by the federal government. So family members of the condemned are often erased and have been um, for the most part throughout this process. And I try to really keep that at the center of my work. Um, it's the reason I approach my stories with an eye towards, you know, including when I can, the voices of the families on the other side who are also losing a loved one in this process. We've been speaking with Liliana Segura. You can find her work online at theintercept.com. Liliana Segura, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me and for covering this issue. (music) 
after a particularly unhinged press conference at which Trump raved from behind a weirdly tiny desk, Twitter users set the hashtag DiaperDon trending, to which Trump responded, as everyone would have predicted, by lying big that Twitter trends are false, made up to make him look bad, and then by lashing out with what tools someone told him he has at hand, in this case by attacking Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which says that websites can't be held liable for what users post. Trump had targeted it over the summer when Twitter fact-checked his lies about voting by mail. How seriously should we take this lame duck flailing, and how does it fit the context of the Trump era in media and telecommunications policy? Joining us now to assess things is Gaurav Laroya, senior policy counsel at the group Free Press. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Gaurav Laroya. Thank you for having me on. Well, let's start with Section 230, which I'm sure many folks have never heard of before. At first blush, it might not sound unreasonable to question it. It sounds like websites aren't being held accountable for content. What's going on here? What does 230 do that bugs Donald Trump so much? 230, as you said, you know, relatively obscure provision of communications law until the last couple of years or so, and especially in the last couple of months, really it provides legal protection for websites that host third-party speech. So the idea behind 230 is to assign responsibility to the users for the speech that they put online and not the people that carry that speech. There are some laws that deal with speech, let's say defamation, things like that. So the way 230 works, it says that if I defame someone on a website, on Twitter. The person defamed is allowed to go after me for that speech, but not the carrier of the speech, which is Twitter itself. It's credited with allowing you know, the explosion of social media and websites writ large, since they're allowed to you know, carry now, in the example of Facebook, billions of people's speech without having to literally vet every single comment on there, you know, let's say in the way a printed newspaper does, or, you know, a radio program. And yet you'd think if it was really about letting anything fly, well, then it would be the groups who we know are most often victimized online. It would be people of color, it would be women, it would be immigrants, you'd think would be on Trump's side. And the fact that those folks are saying, no, Section 230 actually allows us to engage, you know, it sort of gives the story of what's going on here. Well, so the flip side of 230, well, I guess the second part of it is it also kind of solidifies the ability of websites to take down speech that they find distasteful, right? So this is really a right given to, you know, the operator of a website by the First Amendment, but it's given additional protections in Section 230. And this is where President Trump has really decided that he can't stand by these protections anymore. As you said, you know, his fight with Section 230 and Twitter in particular started because Twitter put up a warning label on a on a tweet that he had about mail-in voting. Right. And more recently put up in his mind a hashtag to trend on Twitter that made him look bad. And so what he wants to do is take away the ability of websites to, in his mind, 
censor speech, but really editorialize on their own websites or even ban users, go after misinformation, add any kind of context to the speech of the users on the platform. His time is running out, and I think the ability to pull this off is pretty limited, but that he is trying, you know, and has people clamoring for this kind of thing is not great for, you know, communications policy and free speech in general. Well, let's let's look at that broader picture. People in the U.S. now having to work from home, do school online, and Comcast has announced it's going to introduce home internet data caps. You know, it, it just throws into relief how we don't have a telecommunications infrastructure that is people focused. Now, we do have an agency that's tasked with representing the public interest there, the FCC, but under now exiting GOP-appointed FCC chair Ajit Pai, some would say that the agency ran full out against that mandate. What do you see as the Pai legacy, if you will, and how much of it can be quickly undone? The chairmanship of Ajit Pai has been a disaster as far as, you know, telecom and regulatory ambit of the agency is concerned. He's completely abdicated the responsibility to protect our communications infrastructure, make sure people have access to the Internet and, you know, all these powerful communication technologies. One of the first things he did out of the gate is end net neutrality. He's claimed his radical deregulatory agenda has closed the digital divide. That's not true at all. Right, 80 million people lack broadband at home. And as you mentioned, this is the, in stark relief how important Internet access is now. He has made it incredibly difficult for people to get online. You know, by getting rid of net neutrality, he's tossed out the ability of the FCC to promote universally affordable broadband. You know, those prices are rising again, increasing the digital divide in this context. His deregulatory agenda extends to older forms of communication technology, too. We've seen massive consolidation in, you know, radio, TV, leading to collapse in the diversity of voices and really just huge profits for legacy cable, TV, radio stations that really aren't serving the public interest. And, you know, he's failed in his job to make sure that, you know, the people come first and not these companies. Do we think that there are things that when a Biden administration comes in and and appoints a new chair anyway of the FCC, can some of this be turned back? So we certainly hope so. And I think we've seen rumblings from the incoming administration on that. I hope that first and foremost, what they do is restore that Title II authority for broadband. That's the power the FCC can use to do things like net neutrality. But it's It's really the clincher that leads to all other good things, too, including modernizing the Lifeline program to support Internet adoption, making sure, you know, prices remain low and competitive, allow the agency to investigate unjust and anti-competitive pricing and practices by Internet service providers. You know, there are other things we want to see, let's say a no-shut-off moratorium for broadband during the pandemic. One of the other first things Congress did was kill uh, broadband privacy rules. We want to see those things back so people aren't snooped on by their ISPs as, they, as they're online and that information is used against them in all sorts of ways. I think these are things we can hope to see and, you know, organizations like Free Press will be out there making sure that incoming administration lives up to its promises. We've been speaking with Gaurav Laroya, Senior Policy Counsel at Free Press. You can find their work online at freepress.net. Gaurav LaRoya, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
My pleasure. Thanks for having me here. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.